The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from John chapter 15, verse 18 through 25. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the world, I'm sorry, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. May God bless the reading of God's word. Amen. You may be seated. So we return this morning to our study, the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. And we spent the majority of our time together on the last Lord's Day setting the table for the weeks to come. My aim then was to warn you about these all too common pitfalls that so many 21st century Americans, those that call themselves Christians, that, that we fall into when it comes to the prophetic teaching of Scripture. Particularly passages like this, the Olivet Discourse, where we get prophecy directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Prophecy that the majority of us have been trained to believe are all about the end times. So when we, when we come to these conversations, there are two extreme camps that many people tend to fall into. The first of those is you come to this prophecy and you find it confusing and scary and frankly not worth the effort. I warned you last week, and I pray you didn't take offense at this, but I warned you last week that theological laziness is not a virtue. We don't get to ignore or remove the portions of Scripture that don't come easy to us. Jesus intended for his disciples sitting there on that mountain to see more clearly the kingdom of God as a result of what he taught and as a result of that revelation for their lives to be changed. He intends the same thing for every one of his disciples sitting here in this room. God is revealing himself to us on every page of his word. We would be fools to neglect any part of that. So if you find yourself in this camp, take heart. By the working of the Holy Spirit, and the power of his word. He's going to show you the kingdom of God in his teaching this morning. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to build you up, to strengthen you, transform your mind through the teaching of his son, Jesus Christ. See, on the other extreme, there are people that have just an inordinate obsession with the prophecies. Again, especially those prophecies they believe relate to the end times. Many believers, they get swept up in this fruitless exercise of constantly trying to figure out every last detail of the end to come, the timing of it all. 
On what day, at what hour will Jesus Christ return? And, and who is the Antichrist? Can we know his name or at least the country from which he's going to hail? Oftentimes you'll find these people focusing a whole lot more on politics and current events than the gospel. They'll spend a whole lot more time scrolling through their Twitter feed and watching the local news than they will digging into God's word and asking, how should I live in light of his coming? So if you're in this camp, my encouragement to you is to beware. As I called you last week, beware. If any of the people that you're following after, if any of the thoughts that you have about the prophecies given to you by Jesus Christ, even those that are about the end times, if they don't lead you in a path of personal holiness, if they don't drive you deeper into communion and desperate need for Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then you're on very, very shaky ground. So I called you then to beware. I also called you to take care. Take great care with regards to this passage that we come to this morning. Mark 13, the parallels. Matthew 24 and Luke 21. I called you to take great care that you treat this text with great humility. Over the last 2,000 years of the church, good and faithful and brilliant men have not come to some consensus with regards to exactly what Jesus is saying here. And so we cannot let pride, we cannot let division come in amongst us over a text like this. Now there are some absolute truths that must be clung to. I told you last week that I do not believe you can be truly Christian if you do not hold to the personal, physical, visible return of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate hope. It is the resurrection. If you find yourself falling short of this, if you find your thoughts about the, the ultimate hopes of Jesus Christ, the ultimate hope of your eternal destiny residing in some disembodied state, just some ethereal floaty place, this existence in heaven, completely separated from your body, completely separated from this earth, and dear friends, I, I encourage you, I plead with you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 and allow your hope, allow your expectation, allow your faith in what awaits you in the end to grow. Because I promise you it's probably a whole lot better than what you've even thought. So with regards to the timing, with regards to the order, with regards to all the, all the specific details of when Jesus Christ returns, no matter how long you've held to those convictions, no matter how confident you are that you have the right reading of the Olivet Discourse and the whole book of, the whole book of Revelation, I'm telling you that must lead, you must lead great room for Christian charity towards your brothers and sisters on this. This is not a place for haughtiness. This is not a place for boasting. So with that in mind, my original plan for us as we came to Mark 13 was that we're gonna treat it like every other passage of scripture that we've dealt with over these last three years. We were just going to move verse by verse through the text as if we were hearing it for the very first time. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it is going to be next to impossible for very, the vast majority of you perhaps in this room to hear this text without first running it through your own eschatological filter. Many of you have grown up being taught that this text means something. And so because the Olivet Discourse is so closely tied to so, what so many of us have been trained is the end of times, is the return of Jesus Christ, you're autom automatically gonna be jumping ahead. And then what's gonna happen is, at some point during this text, you're gonna realize that God doesn't believe what I've always been taught. And then you're not gonna be able to hear me any longer. Your heart's going to immediately put up a wall and you're not gonna be able to hear what I say, or perhaps you're gonna spend the rest of the time trying to recalibrate and figure out what in the world is this dude doing? Does he not know what Jesus is talking about here? And so it seems right to me that while this wasn't my intentional purpose or, or intentional plan, it seems right to me that 
I go ahead and just lay all my cards on the table up front. I just show you exactly what I think it is that Jesus is talking about here before we then begin our true exposition of the text. Now, don't, don't worry. I'd, this isn't going to be as long an introduction as last week. But for the, the vast majority of evangelicals, thanks to the Schofield Study Bible, the dispensational view that's taught so strongly in there, because of the Left Behind series, because of just the predominant teaching in most Southern Baptist churches, most people have come to the assumption of a few things with regards to the end of the world. The first of those, based on their reading of Revelation 20, most evangelicals today, they believe there's going to be a future earthly millennial kingdom. They believe that there's going to be a thousand years. That's what millennium means. A thousand, maybe a literal thousand, maybe not a literal thousand, maybe just a really long time, that there's going to be a millennium preceding all these things that we count to be the end of time, that Jesus Christ is going to come and that there's going to be this period of unprecedented peace and spiritual renewal here on this physical earth, that this is going to come before the final judgment. This is going to come before the destruction of all evil. This is going to come before the new heavens and the new earth. It's just a foregone conclusion for most evangelicals. In addition to that, they believe that preceding this millennium, there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation, perhaps a literal seven years of great tribulation. There's going to be pain and suffering and loss, the likes of which this world has never known. So for many of you in this room, I say again, for the majority of evangelical Christians in 21st century America, the only question is, how are these things going to play out? What signs are going to come before they happen? When will Jesus return in, in relationship to all these things? What about us, that is the church? Will we be left here to endure this great tribulation? Or will God somehow rapture us out? Will he take us out before this? You see, for the vast majority of 21st century American Christians, the seven-year great tribulation and the thousand-year earthly future millennial kingdom are foregone conclusions. It's only the timing and the details that can be left unknown. And because so many of us have always been taught this, because so many of us, we read the Schofield Study Bible and we don't really know where the text ends and the commentary begins. We've come to read passages like this with regards to being all about the end times. And we've, many of us, never really given any thought to the reality that maybe there's another way to read this text. Maybe there's another way to understand what Jesus is saying here. I stand before you as a man that's been greatly influenced by this way of thinking. I find even as I come to a different understanding of what Jesus is saying here, I find my speech patterns constantly going back to that premillennial view. That premillennial view, that dispensational view that believes that there's two different plans for God, one for the nation of Israel and one for the church. I find myself constantly being driven by that in my heart, in my mind, and in my speech. And so because we work from that point of assumptions, we believe that all of that discourse is to be read side by side with the book of Revelation and that there we read about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and we immediately assume that this whole thing is about the signs that come before the return of Jesus Christ, the end of the age. What we see here in Mark 13, we believe is a brief statement about the destruction of the temple and then a whole lot of detail about what it's gonna look like whenever Jesus Christ returns in the last days. I'm telling you there's another way to read this text. I'm telling you there's another way to faithfully, I, I believe the most faithful way, to read this text, the straightforward teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, there's, I'm gonna go ahead and warn you. Here's what's going to happen, okay? I've only been here three years, but I know the way this works. People that aren't in this room are gonna hear something about what maybe I said in this room, and then the whispers begin. Josh is a liberal. 
He doesn't believe in a literal reading of God's word. Difference, I've proven to you differently, haven't I? I believe that when God's word speaks literally, we take it literally. I believe that when God's word speaks in symbols and prophecy and apocalyptic talk, we take it in accordance with the way it was written. We take it in accordance with the way the first century hearers would have received it. I'm telling you that you don't need to be afraid of what I'm about to teach you. We may not walk out of this place agreeing on it. It's not a thing to be scared of. When the whispers start, by the way, will you send people to me? That's the best thing you can do for me as your pastor. Squash it. Because most people don't have a clue what they're talking about. They sure don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But here's my hope. I believe that we, if we can read this text with fresh eyes, more specifically, if we can read it not through 21st century American eyes, but if we can, before we try to apply it to ourselves, before we try to look forward thousands of years in the future, if we can try to receive these words just like those men sitting there on that mountain, then what you're going to find here is something very different than what you've previously been taught. Don't worry, I'm not about to assault the gospel, but I am about to challenge you with regards to some things you think about the end of the age. I think if we can come to Jesus' words like this, like Peter and James and Andrew and John, as you receive them like this, what you'll realize is that the primary thing that Jesus Christ is talking about in Mark 13 is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. This isn't a brief message about the destruction of the temple and then a whole lot about the end of the age. Jesus will talk about the end of the age within this chapter, but it's my belief that it does not come until you get to verse 32. I hear y'all flipping because y'all already your minds are going. But mama said, but my last pastor said. So I believe that everything that precedes verse 32 here, these words that we've all been trained to, to assume that they have to do with the end of time, this future millennial kingdom yet to come, this tribulation that comes with this, that this is actually events that occurred within the lifetime of the apostles. I believe that Jesus actually, you want to hear, how's this for literal? I believe that Jesus actually and literally meant what he said in verse 30 when he said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So again, I tell you, if you walk out of this place and we don't agree on this, guys, th this is still not a deal that's gonna blow us up. I've yet to find a deal that's gonna blow us up, by the way. This is not the deal that's gonna tear us apart. You got questions, you come to me, and we can have, I, I, can't, I can't unfold it all. I can't address every single one of your thoughts on this issue, but I will spend hours upon hours with you wrestling in God's word together, not trying to convince you of anything, but helping you to see how I can hold to the straightforward teaching of God and believe what I believe about this particular passage. I'll spend all the time you want. This isn't gonna destroy us. This isn't gonna tear us apart. But again, I submit to you this morning that what Jesus is talking about here, I hope to show you that what, what Jesus is showing us here in this word and the reality of the kingdom of God is that with Jesus' atoning work, with his, death on, with his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his seating at the right hand of his Father, he truly established his kingdom. That the kingdom of God is now. That Jesus Christ reigns today. That there's not going to be some in-between period between this age 
in the age that we call eternity. And while we still wait for that final return of Jesus Christ, while the kingdom has been inaugurated, while Jesus Christ reigns today in the hearts and the lives of those that represent him, while he reigns today from heaven until the last of those enemies is put under his feet, while we still wait for his return, that the very next act in redemptive history is not some time of seven-year tribulation. Although, as I said last week, great trials and tribulations will come. They very well may increase until that final day. And yet what we await for now as the children of God is that trumpet to sound, Jesus Christ to return, and all the things that we previously thought about when we talked about heaven. No more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. The resurrection of all the dead, the judgment of all, the new heavens, the new earth, us reigning in physical bodies in this physical place with the physical person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that all those things come in that singular moment with the return of Jesus Christ. Now we're gonna unpack all that more as we work through this text. And so I do ask you not to get ahead of me. I'm just trying to show you the lens through which I'm teaching this. And again, this proves to you it's impossible to come to this without some set of theology. Everybody likes to pretend like you come to the passages, you come to scripture with an absolute clean slate. Oh, I just read the text for what it says. You don't, you can't. That's not a thing. Everyone comes with certain theology, certain things you've been taught, certain lenses through which you read the scripture. I'm just showing you my hand so you'll understand how I come to this and you're not gonna have your wheels turning the whole time. I believe what we're reading here is about the destruction of the temple. I believe that there's truths that apply to us as well because these very same responses that the apostles are gonna get, this very same response that the world gives them with regards to the gospel, it comes against us as well. So I believe Jesus has much to say for us. I will also go ahead and warn you that my understanding of Mark 13, it is not sexy, it's not gonna leave you impressed, it's not gonna be the kind of thing they write a movie about, it's not the kind of thing they write book series about, you're not gonna leave here thinking I'm a genius. It's pretty stinking simple. We live in a world that hates us, we preach the gospel, we straight stay ready for the return of Jesus Christ, and then he does all the stuff that we can't do, all the stuff we were never intended to do. I think you'll find great hope in this. I'm not telling you that this belief, this understanding is not without difficulties. There's difficulties. There's still difficult passages, and that's what you're going to do. Those of you that want to fight, you're going to underline all the difficult passages. You're going to come to my office and go, yeah, what about, what about, what about, what about? Let me go ahead and save you some time. I don't have answers for all the whatabouts, but you got some whatabouts too. We'll sit and we will discuss those, we'll wrestle through this, but I believe that if you will hear this with fresh ears, you'll see that not only does this match up with what you see with Jesus Christ, you'll find other parts of scripture start to make, play, start to make sense for the first time. You'll find a whole lot less theological gymnastics having to take place in your head while you wrestle with passages that never really made sense, but pastor said, so I had to receive it like that. So, with that, I told you I'd be shorter on my intro. That's manageable. Go ahead and stay on your feet, please. In reverence to the reading of God's word, we return to the 13th chapter of Mark. I'm gonna go ahead and hit it with a running start from verse one, but we're gonna read all the way down through verse 13. This is the word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we desperately need you to give us eyes to see, humble hearts to receive, the ability to discern what, what it is that your son Jesus Christ is telling us here in this wonderful teaching. So Father, that is our desire. We don't want to be right. We don't want to be vindicated. We want to be aligned with you. Help us to understand, help us to see, help us to walk out of here in obedience to what you've revealed. For it's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So we begin this morning in verse, verse three. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So you recall that Jesus left the temple for the final time and, and he's headed back over to the east to the Mount of Olives. And this will remind you of the prophet Ezekiel. He was there by the Chabar River in exile in Babylon. And it was there that he was given this vision. Ezekiel eleven twenty three: the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. See, Ezekiel had this vision of the glory of God leaving the temple of God and headed to the east to the Mount of Olives. Now, the purpose behind this is that God was abandoning his temple so that it could be destroyed by the pagan nations. But at the same time, this would have been a great hope for those that had eyes to see and ears to hear. For the true followers of Yahweh, for those that desperately wanted to be in the presence of God, as he allowed them to be carried off into exile, and they would have had these thoughts that, oh no, the presence of God, the glory of God, it is trapped back in Jerusalem. They now realize that God can go with them anywhere. That God is not trapped. That God is not contained. That they're not completely cut off from access to the presence of God simply because they have been dragged away for their disobedience. That he can come wherever they are. Now, at this point, the glory of God has returned to the temple in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God. He has come into the temple, but the only way that you can recognize that glory, again, is if you have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. So the vast majority of the people, they rejected him. They despised him. They would be calling for his death. So now the glory of the Lord has left the temple again to the east, to the mountain in the east. Do you see the picture? So the glory of the Lord has departed, never, to, never again to return. Has departed from the temple and headed up onto the mountain on the east side. Peter and James and John and Andrew came and asked him privately. This is the inner circle. We've talked about them mostly Peter, James, and John, but now we've got Andrew there, Peter's brother. He's included in this group. They've got ex special access to Jesus. They come to him, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and they asked him privately, verse four, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, don't rush past the question. That's where people get off track, I believe. People go straight to the answer, and they don't even wonder, what is Jesus answering? What question is Jesus answering? What is he responding to? He's responding to this question right here. Now again, the context is important. Jesus has just pronounced a curse upon apostate Israel with the withering of the fig tree. He has cleansed the temple. 
This is a warning. He's issued warnings against the religious leaders. He's told the people, they are hypocrites. You don't follow them. These aren't the true leaders of Israel. He's mourned over the city. Remember in Matthew 23, we read, oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house will be left to you desolate. The disciples then looked to Jesus, perhaps in response to this idea that this great city, this magnificent temple would be left desolate, and they marvel at the majesty of the buildings and the stones and everything that they've just left from. Now, the historians, they tell us that first century Jewish people, many of them, they believe that the temple was indestructible. I described some of it to you last week. That's not unreasonable. There were stones that were over a million pounds, much of it covered with gold. They'd never seen something like this. And so it's not unreasonable for these people to think that surely the temple is indestructible. But now here's Jesus, and he's prophesying not even one stone will be left upon another. This place will be absolutely, utterly destroyed. And so... That's, that's a lot to take in at once, isn't it? I mean, everything that these guys knew, the only way they thought of having access to God, they're being told that this is all gonna come crumbling down. That Israel, this chosen nation, this people that God had chosen to dwell with, this temple, this place where he had allowed them to come into his presence, these priests, these men that were meant to intercede, to go between the people and God, he's being told that all these things are going away. All these things are under attack. All these things have fallen away from the original purpose for which God had given them. So it's clearly understanding the weight of all this, clearly understanding that this isn't just a casual throwaway statement that Jesus just made, by the way. A statement of great force and authority. Greatest prophecy. He says this place is going to be torn down. They look to Jesus and they say, well, tell us then. When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When, Jesus? How soon? How will we know? What signs will we have before everything we know about this world, everything we know about our relationship with God is going to be torn down? Now, at this point, it's very helpful to look to Matthew's parallel. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to read it for you, but if you want to, it's in Matthew 24, 3. It's very helpful to read the way that he records this question. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Did you catch that? It's very similar here. They're asking the same thing. Tell us this. But then they immediately connect that with Jesus coming and the end of the age. The, de- the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. These were such cataclysmic events. These men had to assume that surely that must mean the end of the world. Surely that must mean the end of the age. Surely that must mean that at that moment, Jesus Christ must be coming back. They knew that he was the king, that he had come to usher in the kingdom of God. And if this temple was going to be no more, if this old, this old system was going to be torn down, then surely at that moment, that meant the end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ. And that's a reasonable question. This is not a foolish question at all. At this place, this temple where God invites his people and the nations to come before him, if this is going to be no more, then surely we're all lost unless you come back. Unless something new happens at this time. So please tell us, when will this happen? What will be the signs? What will we see? This is key. Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple. It's the disciples who brought up the end of the age. It's the disciples who made that connection. Now Jesus is going to answer both questions because they're not disassociated. These aren't completely disassociated questions. And there is perhaps even in the destruction of the temple a shadow, a microcosm of what will come at the end of time. Jesus is going to address both of these. But again, the primary focus in his teaching is the destruction of the temple, the end to this religious system, the end of these shadows that had come before because now the substance is here. You don't need those things anymore because the real deal is here. These things were painting a picture 
And now the things that they painted a picture of, I am standing before you now. Do you understand? This is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I am the true temple of God. Your access to God is now in me. You don't need this building anymore. You don't need a physical, earthly building. You don't need these outward religious signs. You don't need these men that are go-betweens between you and God because I've come. And frankly, this is one of my greatest struggles with so many people that teach that there's got to be this rebuilding of a temple, a literal physical temple in Jerusalem, just so some guy called the Antichrist can come and defile it. Listen, Israel might build a temple. And by the way, God is sovereign over the whole wide world. So if Israel builds a temple, it's because God's ordained that Israel's gonna build a temple. They may even build it within our lifetime. But I need you to know that place has got nothing to do with us. You come to God through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't need to participate with the Jewish people in trying to rebuild some old building that God has torn down. And he said, you don't go there anymore to meet with me. You come to my son, Jesus Christ. That's not a part of my redemptive plan. It has served its purpose and it is no more. Again, I say, the shadow has gone away, the substance has come. The earthly temple is a thing of the past. You need to hear Jesus saying this to you this morning. Your access to the Father, your only access to the Father comes in me and it is an affront to me. It is an act of faithlessness in me to continue to look back to the old ways. Just like the author of Hebrews, he's saying don't stop, keep coming. Don't turn back. Don't go back to the old way. Don't go back to the lesser things. Don't go back to the shadows. Don't try to rebuild that system. Come to my son Jesus Christ and be saved. There's no other way. And to prove that to you, I'm gonna leave this place desolate, destroyed, torn down, not one stone left upon another. God could have left it. He could have left the Roman people to come and set it up as a Roman temple of some sort, but we'd have constantly been trying to climb back in there. Isn't that what people do today? So he's saying, don't do this. That's the focus of Jesus' teaching. Verse five. So Jesus says to them, he's answering that question that was just asked. See that no one leads you astray. So Jesus has already called these people to beware, to watch out. Blepete is the word. You remember this. And frankly, I don't think that we grasp just, that we can stress too much the importance of this call. That we must beware, we must watch out, that we're not led, led astray. And I, and I pray that you don't sit here this morning and just nod your head like, yeah, hey, yeah, I get it. Because Jesus is stressing this to us. This is a real threat. Not just to the men sitting there on that mountain, not just to the first century church. It's a threat to us today. We must beware, we must watch out. Jesus wouldn't give so many warnings if it wasn't a real threat. Jesus wouldn't give so many warnings if there wasn't a danger that we would be led astray. There's always men seeking to lead men astray. Not all of them know what they're doing. Many of them believe that they're on the side of the gospel. Many of them believe that they're making true converts. Again, I'm not talking exclusively about people that deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm talking about people who belong to the church. I'm talking about people who can quote the Bible. I'm talking about people that stand in pulpits. How else would they lead people astray? Look, some dude comes in here and says, hey, I think we should worship Baal and rob banks. You go, ah, yeah. No, that's the thing we're not gonna do. But they come in here and mix just enough lie with a whole lot of truth. They say some things that sound really nice. Those people that threaten to lead us astray, they do it through smiles and warm tones. By wooing you, convincing you that they're on your side. We talked about this back with 
Jesus warning about being aware of the hypocrites, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And so we've got to beware. We've got to watch out. This is why John said in this first letter, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. We must test every spirit. You must test every teaching. You must test all things about, against the word of God. The orthodox, straightforward teaching from the Holy Scriptures. Don't be, don't be led astray. Beware. Watch out. Again, this isn't just a warning for the first disciples. It's a warning for every disciple today. Now, Jesus speaks to them then about some specific misleadings. He says in verse 6, Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. We hear even in our time of men coming. They come and claim to be Jesus Christ returned. History has shown no shortage of false messiahs. Not just men that come and and claim to be a return of Jesus of Nazareth, but men that are driven either by pure insanity or just an obsession with power. They're consistently trying to convince people that they are somebody, that they're a messiah, that they're a Christ, they're a special messenger from God of some sort. You may recall a conversation that took place. I think this is, I believe it's back in Acts 5, where after, after the whole event with Ananias and Sapphira and the, and the people are growing in fear and the church is growing and expanding and then eventually they, they call in some of the apostles and they're, they're threatening them and, and, and beating them and telling them you don't need to talk about these things anymore and they're trying to decide what do we do. The, the other Pharisees are thinking we just kill these guys and squash these things now. But then a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, he stands up and he tells them, look guys, we've been here before. There's always somebody claiming to be somebody. There's always somebody claiming to have some special, special message. And guess what? All those dudes are dead and gone. There were constantly men that were standing up and saying, I am he. I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah, or I am the Son of God, or whatever their promise is. That was certainly a thing that took place within the time of these apostles before their death, verse seven. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there had been a long period of peace in the Roman Empire. Prox Romana is what people often refer to it as, but historians tell us that from the time of Jesus' resurrection until the destruction of the temple, there were all kinds of great revolts and rumors of revolts coming up. And you've got to understand that the Jewish people, they constantly lived in threat that some kind of war was going to break out, either, amongst, either between them and some other nation or perhaps between two large nations, and they were just going to get wrapped up in the middle of it. You see, we don't have any sense of that living in 21st century America. We're used to being the big boys on the block. We're used to being the world power. And so we don't have to get scared if Mexico and Colombia bust out in a war. We'll just, we'll keep them there. We'll crush the whole thing or we'll do whatever. But when you're tiny Israel there and you're surrounded by these other nations and God is constantly rising up these great nations, they could crush you just like that. The threat of war, rumors of war, that's a truly terrifying thing. But what Jesus is saying here is it's not the end. Not only is it not the end of the world, it's not even the end of the temple. That's what he's telling them here. That's not the end yet. He's going to tell them what comes before the end of the temple. He's saying that's not even the end of the temple yet. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be nations rising against nations. There's going to be kings rising against kings. And dear friends, you know this continues today. That's why he's saying that's not a special sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. This is a sign that you're in the last days. The last days that began with Jesus Christ that will carry on until his return. Thousands of years. There will always be wars. There will always be kingdoms rising against kingdoms. There will always be nations rising as nations. And we know why. James tells us in James 4. James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The word there for passions is hedone. It's where we get our word hedonism from. It's pleasures. 
It's delights. It's you've got these things that you want inside of you. I mean, you go back to your days in high school history. How many wars broke out over a chick? How many wars broke out over some kind of slight that you thought somebody had against you? It's the history of the world. It's the passions of men rising up against the passions of other men. And so our kingdoms collide, sometimes at the personal level. Many of you have been in personal wars with other people because your passions rise up. You covet and you do not have. You want a bigger kingdom. You want power and money and security and respect. The root of this thing has always been the same. It's the passions of men. It's the desires of men. But he's telling the disciples here that even when true wars break out, even when you hear rumors of wars, you must not be alarmed. Fear is a tool of the enemy. He's constantly working to keep us there. You understand this. Satan is constantly working to keep you in fear. He's constantly working to keep you anxious. Listen, Jesus really does say, be alert, be aware, be on guard. But he's saying, don't panic. Don't freak out. Keep your head. The Israelites, they were always abandoning God. They're always running to these other nations. Egypt, save us. They're always running to other nations around them, hoping that they could find some help somewhere. The enemy tries to do the same thing with us. It shows a heart that doesn't trust in Jesus Christ. Either we don't trust that he's really good, or we don't trust that he's really sovereign. And so we run to the things of this world, trusting other nations, other kingdoms, other entities to do the thing that only God can do. He's telling them, either way though, when you hear of these wars, when you see real wars, rumors of wars, you must know this is not the end. Keep your head. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So just as with the physical battles, the wars, have, th- th- these, these wars that have plagued the world forever, there, there's gonna be these geological events all throughout time. It's just signs of the times. The times that we're in today, the same times they were in then. There's always going to be events like this. And we're told why. The very same reason, because of the fall. Paul talks about this. I'm not gonna read the whole text. Go back and read it at your own, at your own pace. But Romans 8, 18 through 22, Paul talks about this, but he concludes that, verse 22 with, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. With the sin of Adam, with the sin and fall of Adam, the whole cosmos was caught up because rocks can't sin. The ocean can't rebel. And yet we see all kind of events just like this. Chaos comes. Go back and think about the creation story. What happened? It's God bringing perfect order to that which he has created, separating the waters below from the waters above, pooling the seas together over here. There's gonna be some land here. There's gonna be a mountain here. There's gonna be all plants of their own kinds and various animals of their own species. He's bringing order. He's bringing structure. He's bringing stability to this place that he has created. Then he commanded Adam, be fruitful, multiply, and represent me in subduing and having control over all this creation that I've just entrusted to you. The plan there, I believe, is obvious that he would then turn around and hand it back to God. He was going to represent God and in turn and hand back to him this orderly, perfect world that had been entrusted to him. But Adam failed. Adam sinned. Adam rebelled. And with that, not only did work become harder, not only death and disease and decay become a part of the, part of the situation, but all of the cosmos was dragged into this. Again, these types, of, these types of geological events, they came all because of the fall. And these men would soon experience some of those continued things. He's saying, look, these things have been around since the beginning. These things will be around till the end. So don't freak out and lose your head and think this is the end. Not the end of the temple, not the end of the world. These are but birth pains. And we're told about specific stuff that happened. There was a great earthquake that we read that set Paul and Silas free in Acts 16. 
There was a great famine that was prophesied by a man named Agabus in Acts 11. But again, I tell you, we continue to deal with these things today. And look, I, I don't know how much humans contribute to global warming, and I don't know how much global warming contributes to hurricanes and typhoons and tsunamis and all that stuff, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that every last earthquake, every last landslide, every last drought, every last famine, these are all results of the sin of man. These are all a result of the fall. That all of creation came tumbling into chaos because of the sin of our first fat father, Adam, because of the sins of the world. And so what we see in Jesus Christ is a restoration of that order. You wonder why he chose to do the miracles that he did? The healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, the calming of the storms on the sea. He was showing, I have come to do what the first Adam could not, plus more, supernaturally to show you the order that I will bring in the last days before I return this kingdom to the Father. That my plan in the last days is to bring absolute order. But until then, it's not going to happen. There will always be storms. There will always be wars. There will always be famines. There will always be earthquakes. These things are always going to be. They're just a sign of the time. Don't freak out. It's not the end. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Don't panic. Now again, I'm going to skip over this verse as well because I promise you I wouldn't keep you an hour and a half like last week. But go back and read Genesis 8. And what you read there is that in addition to God promising Noah, never again am I going to flood the earth, but he's saying, look, the seasons are going to continue. The days are going to continue. I've got things under control, okay? I'm not going to continue to flood you once every hundred years just to prove to you that I'm God. I'm in control of all things, and I'm telling you, I'm not going to destroy you like this. So again, I say, keep your head. Don't freak out because Satan wants you to lose it. He wants you panicked. Do you understand this? He wants you in constant state of anxiety. He wants you constantly looking around. He wants you sacrificing your kids to Molech so that rain will come. He wants you turning over your family to the government because they promise they're gonna keep you safe. Satan wants you terrified. He wants you worried. He wants you turning to all the kingdoms of this world instead of trusting that he's in charge, trusting that he's in control, and constantly trying to guess what does this mean. He says these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. You know what birth pains tell you? particularly the beginnings of birth pains, we still got time. Amanda, which kid was it that you wanted to eat supper so you didn't tell anybody you were in labor? It was Annie. So Amanda was pregnant with Annie, and her mom had made some dish that she really wanted to eat. And so she went to labor, and she knew these are just the beginnings of birth pains. I'm going to have supper. And so she ate supper and tried to hide her contractions. And guess what? The world didn't end. I believe that's a picture. Go eat your enchiladas, will you? These are just the beginnings of birth pains. Don't lose your mind. Don't freak out. But frankly, it seems amazing to me that this text that Jesus seems to have clearly given us to prevent people from always speculating about the end of the age. He's saying, look, every time there's a war, every time there's a natural disaster, don't go freaking out. These things are always gonna be until Jesus Christ comes and eliminates them for all. The new heavens and the new earth, that's when those things end. But they're going to happen in every last generation. But instead, what do you see all over Facebook all the time? People quoting these verses from the Olivet Discourse with some kind of memo like, are you paying attention yet? Stop, please. Even if you don't believe with, agree with me about the millennial kingdom, even if you believe that part of what Jesus is talking about here is some great tribulation, he's saying these are the beginnings of birth pains. That's not the end. So stop trying to make it the end. I think that we think we're so special, surely we've got to be the generation where it ends. I think that's probably it. We're so important, we've accomplished so much, and surely this is gonna be the time. Nobody's ever had it as bad as us. There have never been wars like this. Some people just don't know history. 
These things are going to always be. These are the ordinary signs, the ebb and flow of creation until Jesus Christ comes back. So don't try to read any more into it than is necessary. Now there's some things that he tells us to beware of. He says, beware of false Christs. Be on guard that you're not led astray, but don't be surprised and freak about, out about these other things. Instead, what do we do? We follow anybody with a smile and some skinny jeans, but we lose our mind over Jade Helm. Every time we hear there's some military exercise in North Texas, this is the end. This is the end. I know this is the end. How do you know? Some dude on the internet that I've never heard of told me so. You're completely upside down. You're backwards. You want to be scared of something? Don't be scared of an earthquake. Be scared of what preacher you sit under on Sunday mornings is telling you what the word of God says. Be afraid of what church you join. Be afraid of who you allow to influence your thoughts. That's where you need to be on guard. That's where you need to have your wall up. When the earthquake happens, you go, yeah, these, these happen. And then in the middle of those things, we focus on what God wants us to learn in the suffering. That's the Point to the rest of what we're going to talk about this morning. God, what do you want me to do in this suffering? Because it's not going away. It's not going to go away. These things are going to continue until Jesus Christ comes back. And so what do you want me to do? How do I respond to you? I'm not going to sit around in charts and try to figure out if this is the end, not the end. I'm not going to try to figure out all the signs and all this. What do you want me to learn today in the middle of this? In the middle of the chaos and the pain and the wars and the suffering that comes because of the sins of the world. And you look at the people around you and you go, we've got the answer for this. We know why this is happening. We know how this is going to end. And you stand before them as cool and calm and level-headed as anybody on the earth. So he's calling us to. Verse 9. Again, he returns to a warning. But be on guard. Blepo. Be ready. And again, this is a warning that extends, yes, to them. He's preparing these men for what awaits them before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But of course, it continues on to us today. Verse 9, be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Again, if we read this with fresh eyes, it is so clear that this happened within the lifetime of the apostles. Go through and you read. All throughout the book of Acts, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 12, Acts 23, Acts 24, James and Peter brought in and beaten and jailed Paul before rulers and governors. By the way, some of these people that they say they're going to bring you before, the councils and the synagogues and these things, many of these things didn't exist anymore after 70 AD. So this thing must have been concluded. This thing must have happened before the destruction of the temple. But these men were all brought in. They were all brought in for the sake of Jesus' name. They weren't brought in because they were ethnic Jews. They weren't brought in because they were religious people. They were brought in for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And dear friends, I'll tell you that the Acts 4.13 to me is the most challenging, and I may not even be interpreting it rightly. I'll confess this. But Acts 4.13 is the most challenging statement in all the book of Acts to me. Peter and John are brought in before the council because they've healed a man. They've talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, they bring the men in, and here's what we read, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, Jesus had warned these men that this would happen. Be on guard, they're going to drag you in, they're going to call you in, they're going to beat you, they're going to flog you for the sake of my name. By the way, if you're getting flogged just because you're a jerk, that has nothing to do with this. He's saying this is going to happen. So I suppose what I ask you this morning is the same thing that I ask myself with regards to this. 
if the day comes and the bad guys come rolling into Crosby, Texas, and it doesn't happen to be a Sunday morning when you're already sitting in this place, the day comes and the bad guys come rolling in, would they know that you were one of the people that they needed to round up? How would they know that you're one of the people that needed to be round up? Is there any evidence in your life that makes people say, surely this man has been with Jesus? And please don't point me to your Facebook. All of Crosby's willing to post some Christian memes. Some minor little shout outs to Jesus Christ like he's their little tag along buddy. I'm saying what evidence is there in your life that you have been with Jesus Christ? When these men come in, they round up the true followers of Jesus Christ. I have this picture in my head of Satan and his, and his demons. They come running in. They say, we're coming to get the enemies of our kingdom. We're coming to get the enemies of our kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And dudes lining up because they assume they're coming for me. They're coming for me. They're, they're lined up ready to take their bullet. They're lined up ready to take their beating. And they go, um, we've never heard of you. One of the boss demons yells to Satan, hey, this dude says he's on the other team. And he goes, um, uh, he's not really a threat. Just let him go. What evidence is there in your life that you're following Jesus Christ? What evidence is there in your life that you've been with Jesus Christ? So Matthew adds, that many people will fall away. Many people will even betray the church. At the time of persecution, only true followers are gonna press on. It's all fun and games until the persecution gets real. It's all fun and games until the cost gets high enough. And dear friends, I would say to you on this Sunday morning that I believe it'd be easier to take a bullet when the Chinese communists come in here and tell us to quit worshiping than it's gonna be to suffer through some of the things that we will actually suffer through in this lifetime. It's easy to picture ourselves the hero jumping on a grenade for everybody else. It's harder to suffer in silence sometimes with nobody else knowing. It's harder to suffer in silence with nobody putting your name on a plaque or letting you stand in a platform and talk about how awesome you are. He's saying many people will fall away. I'm telling you that there are many people that are falling away today for a whole lot less than being in prison and beaten. They're falling away because they got something better to do. They're falling away because there's a minor inconvenience. They're the princess with a pea. I can't sleep in this bed. He says, in addition to that, that there will be false prophets. So during times of fear and turmoil, it's, it's, people are just primed to be misled and, and deceived. Terror robs men of their discernment. It's this, this panic, it drives men, and they, they fall into traps. And so he's telling his disciples, you must be ready for all of these things. All of these things will come before the fall of the temple. Now, I think most of you are convinced at this point, right? Not, not that I'm right about the millennium but that these are things that all happened to these disciples in their lifetime before the destruction of the temple, yes? Jesus said they're supposed to happen. These things are supposed to happen so that we can get you before powerful men so that this gospel can reach the ends of the earth. This is part of my plan for disseminating this good news. You'll be beaten, you'll be accused, you'll be dragged before powerful men so that you can bear witness about me. Again, part of God's plan for the expansion of the gospel. These weren't powerful men. The men within the church, they weren't powerful men. And any of those that had power before, they had to give it up in order to come in. They lost whatever power they had. So how are they going to have access to the unreached world? How are they going to get to these powerful men in these powerful places? God was going to cause them to be dragged before them. Look at Paul. How did Paul get to Rome? He said, this is the way I'm going to get my gospel where I'm going to get my gospel. This is the way this gospel is going to be preached. Through this persecution, through these trials, through this suffering, through this pain. It's all part of God's plan to save the world. 
And Jesus makes this clear by what comes next. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. In the parallel, Matthew 24, 14, we read, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's where most of you part ways with me. You say, okay, look, I, I believe that those other things you said happened before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But he's saying here that the gospel will be proclaimed before the end, to the ends of the world, and you're telling me that that happened before that time? You're telling me that the gospel had reached the ends of the earth before the destruction of the temple? I said, I believe that those other things will happen. I believe they happen today. I believe they'll continue to escalate. But Jesus Christ clearly just says here, the gospel must first be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. And this is the rallying, rallying cry of missionaries all around the world, isn't it? I've said it from this pulpit. I've literally said it from this pulpit that we are hastening the return of Jesus Christ as we take the gospel to the unreached people of the world. So I need you to hear me very, very clearly that I'm not diminishing the Great Commission. I'm not diminishing the call of Jesus Christ on our life to make disciples of the nation. I'm not diminishing the words that we sang this morning that around that throne will be one from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. I'm not diminishing any of that. Jesus puts clear emphasis on it. And as a matter of fact, that statement, the Great Commission, it is one of those texts that has brought me to a strong conviction that what I believe about the millennial kingdom is true. When you read what he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you even unto the end of the age. He says, I'm on my throne. How's this gospel gonna get to the ends of the earth? Because I have all authority. I have all dominion. I have all power. And I'm gonna get this gospel to the ends of the world. Go make disciples of all nations. Now you see, I referenced Revelation 20 at the beginning, right? Because one of the things that gets people really hung up is there in Revelation 20, it talks about a time, a millennium, a thousand years, wherein that dragon, serpent, Satan, he is bound and he is thrown into a pit for a thousand years that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Dear friends, I'm telling you that with Jesus Christ's death and the power of his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of his father, that serpent has been bound. This does not mean he's powerless. He continues to be the God of this generation. He continues to be the prince of the power of the air. But what does it say he's bound with regards to? The deception of the nations. Before the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the nations were in darkness. They were deceived. No access to the kingdom of God. But as Jesus Christ takes his throne, he's entrusted his disciples with this gospel message, with the sending of his Holy Spirit, the people of God are then set loose to go and share this gospel to the ends of the earth. I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and therefore this gospel will go. The worlds will hear the gospel, that people will be saved out of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's going to happen. I believe this is in part what Jesus talked about in Mark 3 when he talks about the binding of the strong man, going into the strong man's house and plundering his house. I see your faces. It's okay if you don't believe, with me, believe me on this. I'm telling you, a whole lot of things don't make sense if this ain't true, though. And so I'm not diminishing for one minute the, the purpose. There's purpose for why you're still here. 
there's still work to be done. I'm not telling you that the, the proclamation of the gospel was done by the, by the year 70 AD. I'm not telling you that there's no work left for us to do. I'm telling you that that great commission still rests on us today, that we're to be a people that as we go, as you go wherever you go, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to church, as you sit in your home, as you walk along the path, as you go, you're to be about the business of making disciples. This is more than just sharing the gospel. It begins with sharing the gospel, but it's actually living out the gospel. It's walking hand in hand with people. Dear friends, making disciples is messy and it hurts. It costs you friends. It costs you time. This isn't something you do in 15 minutes. This isn't something that's just three hours on a Sunday afternoon. This is the lifeblood of who we are, making disciples. As you go, you make disciples because Jesus Christ is on his throne today and Satan cannot stop you from doing this work because he has been bound. That's the point. That's the point to what he's teaching here. And so, so people will ask, okay, well, what's your plan? I hear this all the time. What's your plan for evangelism? What's your church's plan for evangelism? What's your church's plan for making disciples? And, and then they want to know about corporate worship. Why don't you have an invitation at the end of corporate worship? Why don't you make sure that lost people are comfortable in corporate worship and that they have opportunities to be saved in cor- corporate worship? Guys, I preach the gospel every week. I preach the gospel every week, but you need to understand what we do in this room. The world is constantly trying to deform you. They're constantly trying to, to, to change your mind and to control your heart and to indoctrinate you. And they're, they're constantly working to get you to conform to the pattern of this world. They're, they're, and, and so we come into this place in the middle of this great suffering. Hey guys, you need to know there's, there's people in this church that are, dang, I knew I wasn't gonna cry today. There's people that come in this place with baggage, man. Like stuff you don't even know about. Like I, I was just listing over the weekend just the mountains of people that are just wounded. They're, they're out there in this world of darkness and they're, they're, they're getting, they come here with arms cut off and friends that have died and they come in here in the middle of all this and they go, man, he's worth more. We gather together and we glorify him. While the world looks at us and goes, dude, you're missing an arm. Don't you think you ought to lay down for a little bit? You're losing blood. You go, no, no, he is more. And you come in here and you're, you're, you're bound up. What we're doing in here is we're glorifying God, but we're building each other up. So the brother comes in here with his arm hanging off, and we say, look, here's the medicine that you need. Here's the water that you need to drink. Here's the food that you must consume. It's all in Jesus Christ. And we, we bind each other up. We're constantly reformed as we come into this place. What we need is to come into this place and worship together. We take our spiritual gifts and we, we build each other up. We're reformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And then we go right back out. We go right back out in the battlefield. We've been transformed. Our mind constantly renewed so we can know what is good, so we can know what is right, so we know what is pleasing to him. And we hit the door and we charge right back out in the battle. We know it's still waiting for us. The world's still out there, guys. And they still hate you. They still reject your gospel. They still reject and resent the fact that you would tell them that they need a gospel. And so you come in here limping, dragging a, dragging a couple of dead bodies along with you. You come in here and you go, I, I got nothing left. And you come in here and worship and you cry out to God. And you go, God, I don't know how much longer I can endure. You said he who endures to the end will be saved. I don't think I can endure. Not this. Not anymore. And he gives you the thing you need more desperate than anything else, himself. 
And then you trust in his spirit to give you the words that you need to speak as you go back out there. That's, that's what we read here. Is Jesus says, look, you don't have to figure out beforehand what you're going to say. It's not you who speaks, it's the Holy Spirit. You want to know my plan for evangelism? It's to bandage my people up in this place. It's to come together before the throne of the living God and say, you're worth more than all the rest of the world. It's to hold him before you so you can see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. You go, he's worth more than everything else. So you can drink deeply from the fountain that never ends. So you can sit at the feet of his throne and, endure, and enjoy unending pleasures. My plan for evangelism is that you would see that the gospel is everything, that it is enough, that it will bound your wounds. That it will heal you up. Then you charge right back out there in the world and get punched in the face again as you keep proclaiming it. That's my plan for evangelism. And I don't need to give you a script. I don't need to give you an outline. Listen, you need to know scripture. It's the word of God that saves you. Hide the word of God in your heart. There's a few verses that help you with this. Praise God. Hide those words in your heart. Be ready to present them. But you trust the Holy Spirit to give you the word because it's only the working of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word that's gonna save anybody. Knowing that most are going to reject it. Is that really the time? Okay. Yeah. We'll finish tomorrow. They hate you. Spoiler alert, they hate you. They hate you. Sorry. Father God. Um, Father, we thank you we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you, Father, for the, um, for the assurance that your word will endure, that your word will stand, that your word will bring about its good purpose, that it will not come back void. We thank you that the power of your word does not rest in us, the broken vessels, but that the power of your word rests in your Holy Spirit doing the work. I pray for those that have limped into this place this morning, those that have been beaten, those that have been accused, those that have been slandered, those that are just suffering days the likes of which many of us could never imagine. I pray that you bind them up. pray that you heal them up. I pray that you show them that your word is enough. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.